This call may be recorded or transcribed. Good afternoon. Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. How are you doing? Um, good. How are you? Doing well. It has been a long week, but a fruitful one. What do you and, think? Uh, lots of, it's been a long week, but a fruitful one. Oh, that's, okay. That's I feel great. like I'd be able to have some significant conversations about important topics, mm -hmm. including a really good uh, vendor call with Anish and his business partner at Quilt Data yesterday. Oh, there he is. Hello, Anish. Hey, how's it going? How's it going? Hey. I was as. I was dialing in. It occurred to me that datacrat is not a nice sounding word. <laughs> data. Datacrat? Datacrat. Datacrat? It's too close to autocrat. Well, not that Democrat is a bad word. For some people it is, but <laughs> I guess an anything crat is, is really a good connotation. Well, at least it's an honest concentration that you're talking about. Well, the idea is that you are being clear about the rules, right? Even calling someone an autocrat is better than having like a secret hidden power behind the throne who's making all the decisions invisibly. Oh, that's an interesting point, actually. So let me see if I can unpack that. I think you were saying that an autocrat, wow, is at least forthright about it. There's a syntax to what the autocrat does, but the dictator, and I'm not sure that in the dictionary world there's a distinction, but the dictator has a, a completely opaque way of doing things. Well, yeah, and more importantly, I think the whole idea of an autocrat or an autark, I guess it's a similar word, is that we have decided that it, it's, it's clear to everyone that the whole purpose of the system is to allow one person at the top to make all the decisions. That's why you have an autocracy. Um, yeah, and there's uh, there's some really good, some really interesting semantics to dig in here. So the first is that autarky, A-U-T-A-R-K-Y with a K, means exactly the opposite of what you think. It's self autarky is self-sufficiency. So a company, an autarkic, I said company, I meant country, is one that kind of provides for its own resources and does things. It's, it's autarky is closer to autonomy. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the interesting thought that I had, again, autarky with a K, was that an autocrat, um, rather than his or her rules being transparent, it, I'm trying to distinguish from fiat, they do things that are consistent to themselves. They just have are able to impose them on other people. Right. So, and the idea yeah, is there's a system where there's one person in charge who, as, as uh, they say, only one person has free will, the person at the top. Yeah, I guess there's there's so many different ways to look at that. But then I think that there's if if we actually look in political philosophy, that there's a subtle, maybe not so subtle. And of course, we know the political spectrum from left to right is actually a circle, right? So I think you have authoritarianism on one side and totalitarianism on the other, and they end up being very similar systems. But one is considered far left and the other is considered far right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think one of the things is that, I mean, the whole left-right distinction was originally based on this concept of private property, and that was in context to the idea of all land sort of being owned by the church and only ruled oh, over by the states or something, right? So the, the, the whole framework was based on, um, you know, the issue of private property is not really considered a hot button issue in most cases, um, but it's become a placeholder for this sense of individual rights versus uh, or, or, or somewhat arbitrary and I think tendentious is the word or contentious uh, disagreements about the balance between personal freedom and social responsibility. Yeah, I think it's what, what they call a bellwether issue. Basically that if once you register your opinion on this one issue, property rights, you can kind of tell where people fall. It's very, it's highly informative as to where people fall well, on other. Well, that was, that was the idea. But like, like right now, I don't think most Americans even know that they have an opinion on property rights unless it's like against property taxes. <laughs> so I think I can bring us back to the main line in a startling and interesting way. I, I haven't really followed it. <laughs> no, it, wait, wait for it. Uh, I, I agree with most of the politics, but 
I don't know, 10, maybe 20 years ago, who's this guy? John Stewart did, did an interview on, maybe it was Crossfire. I think they had him on Crossfire. Okay. You know, I, no, I, no, it, was 2000, uh, it was 2004 or five. Cause I remember that was like the high point of my watching television was when John uh-huh. Stewart appeared on Crossfire. Good, good memory. That's significant. Okay. And when he was really good, he, <laughs> he was really good at aping both of them, which I thought was hilarious, but he said something which is absolutely staggering. And he said, you know, look at this show. We, we have left and right. Car- why? Who said that there are only two directions? Cartoons have at least four directions. Like you know, can, like a flat two-dimensional cartoon has four directions. Can we at least be that dimensional? <laughs> and then you, which is interesting now, and it's a very common. It's common in memes, and it's common in this political compass. Is people are like, well, you're right. You know, there's there's an economic spectrum. How conservative or liberal are you in the economic dimension? And then there's the political dimension. And I'm wondering if it's appropriate to introduce a data dimension. And if, and if that could be, if we can now take political, economic, and data, and if that would, you know, if we could perhaps place a datocracy somewhere in that graph, or, or does that just separate ooh, graph? Ooh, 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 ooh. Here's the, um, this, this is, a, I'm going to steal your, your uh, point to twist it into my own ends here, is that I posted a, <laughs> I want to answer your question from last time which was how do we turn the semantics of our organization's values into syntax? You remember that? Because that was one of the things you said, well, ideally in a, uh, you know, a well-functioning ecosystem, you can look at an organization and say, oh, I know what their values are, so I can make a rational choice whether to trust them. Um, Right, so there's two pieces here. One is rational trust of like, are they gonna keep their promises? And secondly, are they going to make promise? Uh, do their values align with my own? So those are the two dimensions there, right? And that, do I know what their, their values, values are? And will, will, yeah, will, will they act in a way consistent with those values? Which to mm-hmm. me is, is sort of a subset of keeping promises. And like, what even is the promise that we're making here? So the the fascinating uh, thought I came up with, I call it the crucial conjecture, um, which is an acronym saying that the most objective measure of our values is which data sets and analyses we collect, uh, retain, use, share, ignore, and learn from. And so the claim is that, not that this is perfect, I don't believe in perfect objectivity, but sort of the best you can do is like I said, let me show you how I make decisions. These are the data sets I consider. Oh, These are the analyses I use on them. And if you can see those things, like I was just listening to talk about the Supreme Court. We talked about how the legal system is a very crude sort of execution engine, right? Mm. And then the Supreme Court, when they make a right. decision, they're supposed to generate all these inputs that they consider. They get to hear both sides. And then there's these outputs that they generate saying, this is how we decided and why. And it's like, okay, it's not perfect. It doesn't tell us everything, but it's the most objective way we have of evaluating a system based on its inputs and its outputs, its data sets and its analyses. And knowing this means that the more uh, coherent and transparent those things are, the better sense you have. Like, it's funny when you think about this in, in terms of religion, like which book do you go to? Do you read the Bhagavad Gita? Do you read the Bible? Do you read the Quran? And then, not, but it's not just the data sets you draw from. It's also which analyses do you use? Do you believe in authority? Do you believe in the plain reading of scripture? Do you believe in the Talmudic interpretation of over time? And like, but if you know, uh, talking about bellwethers, right? If you kind of know which data sets people look at and which analyses they, you know, adore and shun, you can reach a pretty reasonable understanding of what they value. That's the conjecture. I know. I, I think there's a lot there. I think it's. I think it's very significant, and I think it is. It is a way of quantifying some aspects of trust. I think it also gets to what one of Donald Trump's personality characters was that drive that drove people crazy. And I want to drill on this point. What was that? You know, <laughs> his heuristic was. You know, this is my gut feeling. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> right, right, right. right. So, 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 data. And what I want to say is that we can't, 
we should not construct a system in which those people are wrong. And I want to just give some prima facie indication why that might be a very bad idea or might just sorry, sorry. Which, 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 sorry, which people are wrong? Well, so what if, uh, what I'm trying to ask, the question I'm trying to ask is, what if somebody's heuristic is, is, is totally opaque? That doesn't make them wrong and it doesn't, it might mean that they're not data driven, but it doesn't mean that we should rule them we should throw them out uh, out of hand. And look, this is what I'm yeah. thinking of. Yeah. Is what does Myers Briggs? Okay. So which may be complete hooey. I'm not. I'm neither advocating nor uh, denigrating <laughs> Myers Briggs, right? But the, let's just suppose style. for a moment that yes. So if pe people are, who are what is it? What is the contrast to intuitive judging? Uh, no, perceiving is judging. Intuitive is sensing. I think what I'm trying to say is that there may, there are, and I haven't taken that battery. They do look for like, are you a person who flies by, you know, by your gut instinct or who like looks at the data? And so if well, a significant yeah, yeah, portion no, 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 of the population. No, okay. I, I actually reject that dichotomy. What I think the real distinction is between people who have a, describe their decisions as intuitive and people who describe their decisions as logical and rational, because that is the objective thing I can measure. In reality, what I have found in myself and others, just because I described my decision as rational is not strongly correlated with how motivated or sincere or thoughtful it is. Mm -hmm. Well, and right? there's so also the, the problem can, of, yeah. you can consider terabytes of data and you know, you. <laughs> First of all, if it's split down the middle, it literally does mean mean something, and it, or it may be very strongly skewed, and you may decide that there are idiosyncratic factors that you should go in the opposite direction of the data. Like, I, in other words, knowing what data people have considered may or may not tell you anything about their decision. Well, no, I think the the, the this is well, I think it does in the sense that um, which data sets they admit and have access to oh, will tell you quite a bit about their decision, right? Is that, I mean, it like could, any political could, yeah. discussion, right? It, it, and like I said, it's not that it's perfect, but it's informative, right? If I know that you talked to Susie and Billy, but not to Barbie and Joe before you decided where you're gonna have dinner, it's like, well, okay, I'm gonna have one opinion of it versus if I know you sat down and had an open chat thread where I could see it. And I think the issue is that, I think it's really important. I'm not saying that more data is always better. I'm not saying that more transparent analyses are always better than more opaque ones. I'm saying that they reveal our values. Like, you know, in some cultures, you know, or communities or individuals you say like, I'm just deciding based on my gut. In other cultures, you'll say, I'm deciding based on the data. Like Apple, for example, was very clear that we don't make decisions based on data, but we make decisions informed by data. So you show all the data, you look at all the data, and then you decide based on your gut, right? And that was mm, that our was, culture that, that for how we made decisions, right? And, but the thing is, is that, so like, if you look at the data and say, well, I see your point, but I don't care, this is what I think we gotta do, then okay, that's the way, that's our cultural value, um, yeah. is that we consider it and then we ignore it. Like I said, we, we, we look at our customers, listen to what they want, uh, we love them, and then we ignore what they say and do what we think is best for them. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, right, that the is our ciders, value. Yeah, the deciders, I think, should, you know, whoever makes the decisions, right, uh, will participate in, they should not make express the reasons for uh, uh, making the decision. And gut feeling is not an acceptable decision. An, an acceptable... So, 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 why, why do you say that? Uh, because we have you, to. You are the king of gut reactions, Ernest. Me? Well, exactly. Well, yeah. I am. <laughs> yeah, okay. you say, oh, I just can't stand this. Your decision to post on Facebook. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Oh. Yeah, right? Well. It's like, right? Like, you can give me all these logical reasons, but the reality is you make a decision because, and this is why I value you, Ernest. You are an mm -hmm. artist. You have a soul that is passionate about a certain vision of the future and all the things that you feel are constituent of that and you love certain things and you hate certain things and you can, it is helpful sometimes to be able to articulate the reasons but sometimes like well no it's just wrong right 
And we all do that. And I don't think it's necessarily better or worse. What I would say is that the extent that is, the way I would put it another way, is that the ability to describe why we made a decision is a skill, right? Uh, and to be able to explain our decisions to others is a skill. And some people are really good at it, and some people are bad at it, and some people are really good at lying about it. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. A great many lies are told at that phase because oh, everyone yeah. is subject yeah. to post-rationalization, right? Like, like that's the other thing about data. You can use data. You can make any decision you want with any malicious intent and malicious reward, and then you can justify it with data. I mean, that's so easy to do. And and by the way, data science is this is the art of science. You know, you can give a hundred data scientists the same identical data set. It needs to be sufficiently dimensional and complex, and you will get radically different interpretations of what it means. And those so things are all filtered by... Sure, exactly. There's no different. This is no different than that. And those things are all filtered by their, their personal predilections and, and preferences on the issues at hand. Uh, sorry, well, right, you're going to jump in with something. It, I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking of Texas and their abortion situation. Like, Okay, the governor. Can you recapitulate that? Because I don't know. I clearly know what abortion is. I, I don't I, know what the Texas I, I, abortion is. Let, let me give you the short version. Is that the, Texas wrote a really bizarre law that so Roe v. Wade technically enjoined state officials from enforcing abortion restrictions. So Texas, in a, has what has been described as a diabolically clever move, created a bizarre hmm. law which basically makes abortion subject to civil lawsuit bounties. And it, it, it was a you know, brilliant, horrifically brilliant piece of legal engineering, which led to this. But I mean, in that case, it's like, I think it's really clear, like the Texas lawmakers or really anti-abortion advocates in general, they focus on the data sets of harm to the fetus and ignore the data sure. sets of harm to the female. That is clearly the data sets or that they harm consider to the community or whatever is downstream. Or, or, yeah. or whatever, right, right, right. But like, for just, I mean, abortion is a classic example. One side focuses, focuses pretty much exclusively on what are you doing to these poor women? And the other focuses on exclusively what are you doing to these poor fetuses? And you, you've given me hope. Consider completely, yeah. You've given but, me hope that, that the world can understand the pain of computer science and the difficulty of writing software because this is, <laughs> this is a bug in the law and, and, and it's going to be exploited. And, it, and the bug is this, by the way. This is a definitional problem. It's very much a computer science type bug. Until there's agreement on where one body begins and one body ends, we're not going to solve this problem. We're, we're, well, there's, but, the but legal framework has no teeth. But, but here's the thing that's yeah. interesting to me. That is the problem. If, uh, but, but, but actually, I would say that there's, there's many layers to the problem, right? And that that layer of the problem, what's interesting to me is actually this problem of empathy, oddly enough. Uh, I read this book uh, called Empathy, and it's kind of written like for software programmers. That's what I heard about on a programming contest. They talk about emotions that signal your... Who have no empathy as a rule? But no, it talks about emotions as an information processing problem. Emotions are signals your body sends to your brain. And that if you have an appropriate signal handler, then your body takes the appropriate action, the emotion is resolved, you move on with your life. If you lack an appropriate signal handler, the emotion bounces around in your brain and you develop a mood, if not a pathology. (laughs) And it's like, ah, that explains a lot. Um, And what, but the the last part of the book was where she said, you know, the funny thing is, is that that normal empathy is one-sided. Feel bad for the person on this side and feel angry at the person on that side. And in all these debates, you, you never, you rarely hear a Republican say, well, but of course it's really hard for these women. Um, and you never hear a Democrat say, well, of course it's sad that babies die. I mean, I guess Hillary Clinton to her part actually did say that, um, you know, but you know, you're kind of not allowed to express sympathy for the other side because that implies that you don't take the pain of this side seriously. And to me, that's really a question of which data sets do you declare off limits? Like, I don't care off about limits. the truth. In fact, that's, yeah, it's like you say, your pain, your feelings here shouldn't matter. Only these uh, feelings matter. That's kind of how we make those decisions. I mean, I feel like yeah, you know, but, very much the Texas lawmakers say, like, this is the thing that we consider important, and we're going to ignore all the other costs because this is the thing that we consider important. And that's the, that's the problem right there. Like, 
okay, if you have a data set, you have to consider the entire data set. In our datocracy, like, okay, we have to collect all kinds of data to make a decision. Okay, there's somebody got pregnant. Well, there's a man over there. There's a boy. There's a father who raped his daughter. There's an uncle. Or, or there's just a criminal. Right. Well, or there's just but, boyfriend but and girlfriend. Right. This is the, the corollary. I don't know if I mentioned this part. The corollary is there is no perfect set of values because like if you have too little data, you're not being comprehensive. If you have too much data, it's indigestible, right? Like this is analysis paralysis, right? You say, do we consider every possible thing that's ever happened through history? There are people who do. They argue, well, look at the Roman Empire. They allowed abortion and that led to the downfall of the Roman Empire. I mean, like, is that admissible? Is that part of the data set or not? I don't know. It, at some point, we have to make arbitrary decisions about what we consider in scope and out scope, what we consider an appropriate level of granularity, and there's no perfect answer. There are cases where, like, okay, I can see that there's this no data perfect set data set totally either. So, and, right, and yeah, I you, don't you think can say that this data set dominates that one. Like, this is clearly a better yeah, data set than so that one. You, I am but even highly there, skeptical. Hard. I'm highly skeptical of the proposition that more data leads to more clarity. Um, I think it leads Not to more divisiveness. Yeah. Well, right. But the point is, is that is, is I'm making a weaker claim here, which is that if you the 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 more uh, accurate and transparent I am about which data I consider and how I consider it, the better you can objectively uh, ascertain my values. And conversely, the 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 corollary is that the better job I do of demonstrating that, the more I show that I care that you properly understand my values. And I think that's the interesting thing. It's not that there's any like absolute good or bad, but that this is the thing that we take seriously, that we document our inputs, we document our outputs, we do our best. And the great thing about this is you can look and say, well, if someone publishes their data and their analyses, you can look and say, well, wait, if I run a different analysis, I'll get a totally different result. And your analysis is really uh, or your analysis isn't actually matched the data. So this Milliken, they, they talked about that, where like, wait, he published all his data and he threw out a bunch of it and he came with this result. People rerun the analysis and say, well, you know, was that legitimate or not legitimate? But you can then have that argument. Whereas if they just give you a, a, a blank piece of paper with a number on it, you can't cross check that. And then you can, uh, so anyway, the point is that this is the, this is the game worth playing. It's not a perfect game, it doesn't solve everything, but the best we can do is if we want people to trust our values more, we do things like this podcast. We have our discussions out in the open rather than in secret chambers. We show our work, we show the draft, and the better, more we do that, the better chance people have of forming an accurate perception of our values. And as we've seen in supply chains, the more vendors start publishing data, the more consumers start requiring data, the more forces everyone to level up the quality of their work. It's not perfect. It can always be game people during the system, but that's the game that we're trying to play is to get people to give honest assessments of their inputs and their outputs. Yeah. And the, the, the more hypothesis you... here. Sure. Yeah. The more and, you and publish. The... Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, the more, the more, and there's a tension between comprehensive and digestible. I think I talked about that last week, but, mm -hmm. The the in a datocracy, the, the datocratic lens, let's call it that. When I look at a monarchy versus a dictatorship versus a democracy, it's like you know, actually, if I had a deeply bureaucratic uh, monarchy or, or dictatorship like the Chinese Empire, I actually prefer that to a uh, democracy where there are no immutable records, you know, in a sense that, uh, well, uh, from a democratic lens, it's not saying that this is like necessarily better or worse to live, but from the narrow lens of datocracy, it's like, okay, at least I know what they're doing and why uh, versus uh, whether or not. And I think the, the, the one thing that comes out of this is that the, the value of an immutable public history is, is just so incredibly valuable. 
right? The fact that you don't have secret ballots, uh, they don't have secret councils, the fact that you can't do the 1984 thing of rewriting history whenever you feel like it the way the Soviet Union used to. It's like, okay, so having a musical public history is just hugely valuable. And if everyone can keep a copy of it and they can detect tampering and have meaningful arguments about it, like that's huge. And the second thing to your point, Ernest, it's not like, okay, it's not naive. So naively it's true that more data and more transparent analyses is better. That's not always true because there's second order effects. Too much data can lead to confusion. Too much transparency around analyses can lead to, um, you know, obfuscation and showboating and things like that. But it is still generally true that the entity that considers the most data and is the most honest and transparent about their analyses is more likely to give a fair and accurate, uh, an optimal decision. Mm. And, and I think that that is the, and, and the point is actually not so much in the individual case, there's always room for cheating and lying and overwhelming, but over time, as the ecosystem matures, you can use, I guess, a data maturity or decision maturity index or something. And that, that allows, what you really want is the people who are going to make the best decisions to be trusted the most. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the short uh, definition I have of better is most accurately uh, predict the future and make promises they can keep. Right. The person says, well, if I'm elected, I will do this. And they do that. Like the person who's, is, you generally want people who are more likely to uh, correctly achieve the results that you uh, uh, hoped for when you gave them this authority. And the better you get at that on both ends, hopefully the happier your civilization is, society. All right. I'll shut up. Well, the. I, I, the only one point there is just to be very careful about how you measure the accuracy of a decision maker. And I'm just very loudly thinking of Amazon's policy of only judging decisions on inputs, right? So actually part of being data-driven, believe it or not, and this applies to poker players, and there's Annie's, Annie Duke's book on thinking back, to, which makes exactly this point, is that you I have to judge book, the quality of the podcast. decision. Yeah. Oh, I've not heard her podcast. You have to, the, the correct way to judge a decision when you are working in a probabilistic field, and I don't think that's overly strict for the cases we're thinking about is on the inputs, yeah. and Amazon is very careful about that. It's just too well, easy to judge things on an outcome. Sorry, there, there's two different things going on here, right? One is to say, uh, well, the, the example she gives is, is uh, the counter example is resulting. Like, if I had a really bad strategy, but I got ridiculously lucky, I'll think it was a good strategy. That's a flawed analysis, right? Is that like, okay, you know, because, you know, even a stop clock is right twice a day. But it's not to say that you never consider outputs. You say it's like, okay, I have this strategy based on the mathematics of the situation, and I'm going to bet on that. And the probability of what's happened in the past, I, I can make a decision. And sometimes, you know, I have a 90% chance of being right. 10% of the time, I'm going to be wrong. But if like the last two times I was wrong, uh, if I throw away my strategy, you know, what I know to be true because I've had a bad recent experience, that's a flawed analysis. On the other hand, if I assume I have a 90% chance of being right, and then I'm wrong 10 times in a row, I'm thinking, okay, I probably should go back and recheck my analysis, <laughs> right? And so there's a healthy dialogue, uh, even a dialectic between focusing only on the inputs and the logic and focusing on the results. Because you can either overweight or underweight them depending on your cognitive biases at the time. And uh, what does, how do you determine whether you're wrong or right? Uh, because others... Well, the, 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 the horrible thing is that you never really know for sure except That's within true. a well-defined time box, right? If I can say, okay, it, you know, if I want to evaluate, was this a good president or a bad president? It's like, well, which, which data sets do I consider and which analyses do I allow? Do I consider what happens during his reign? Do I consider after his reign? Do I consider just the economic factors, the political factors? And the reality is, is every decision has unforeseen consequences, right? Like uh, as someone who's you know, nominally pro-life, I look at the Texas law and say, you know, like I admire their heart, but creating this bizarre gerrymandered electioneered legal uh, loophole thing just feels like you're opening a can of worms that's going to come back to bite us in so many ways that it feels like a horrible strategic move in order to win a local tactical vi victory. 
And, you know, am I right? I don't know, but that's a different analysis with a different time horizon and a different data set that it considers as relevant. And the reality is, is that no one really knows. The best you can do is to try to be you know, more comprehensive in what you collect and more honest about what you use and, you know, leave an immutable record so that people over time can make more nuanced judgments about it. So the, the so uh, people outside of the decider are the ones who determine whether the decider was right or wrong. The decider, are, you know, they, if you measure well, let's the, the the decider had some data and decided this decision. So we have to assume that to the decider that was the best decision, right? So everybody else is the one who. Uh, will judge that the decider cannot judge that maybe he uh, or she uh, can say okay others are saying that my decision was wrong um you know what do i do it as a decider they can just um i don't know le learn from the opinions of others maybe re-examine their decision making process uh but whether they think they made the right decision or the wrong decision doesn't matter what they think the decider is outside of you know it has to be judged by well, others right well or, i think the way that uh, what, what, what i would say probably is that i talk about this as a data craft conundrum right is that we have to work with the syntax of the provider but we care about the semantics of the consumer so ultimately the people who are affected by the decision all get a say in whether they think that decision worked well for them or not, right? Including the decider. Um, yeah, including the decider. I mean, he gets to have a say, you know, how you weight those things, you know, at what time frame. Again, that's another data set, like who gets to decide what's right or wrong. Well, maybe uh, the, I think the thing that I think is critical, though, is a person who makes the decision needs to be decoupled from the people who collect the data to determine that, that, that is used to determine whether it was a good or bad idea, right? Because you know, cognitive bias on our own part will make us tend to want to justify our own decisions. And if you have a, um, if you lack that Chinese wall between the decisions, the one who makes the decision and the ones who evaluate its results, then you have all these perverse incentives. So um, the, the decision makers, they just say, we require uh, more information about whatever this subject, but then somebody else has to provide that information. It cannot be them. No, no, not for the collection. No, not, not ahead of time, uh, after the fact. So it, it's the freedom of the press argument, is that the government can make what, the laws, but the press the, gets to collect and see what it actually happens to society, right? It's not a world like we briefly had during the beginning of the pandemic, where only the government agency responsible for fixing the problem was allowed to talk about the problem. You remember those things where the CDC like banned researchers from publishing the, the Washington Flu study? Uh, oh, that would be uh, one of many examples. Yeah. 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 There are lots of agree, but like, but like, that's the problem is when the people who are responsible for the decision get to control the flow of information about it. That's what. Now yeah. they're willing to collect all the information they want, but when they start having the ability to uh, interfere with the ability of others to judge their decision, that's where. Uh, and so that's 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 an anti-datocratic uh, mm -hmm. behavior, right? And the whereas you know open source decision making, immutable public histories, open public meetings, um, disclosure of lobbying. Uh, you know you, you heard the joke that you know congressmen should wear uh, NASCAR like suits with labels of all the people who've contributed to their campaigns whenever they appear on camera. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. You know that that that's a that's a pro datocratic viewpoint. Uh, is that it gives people greater transparency and digestibility of what's going on, and and, and so the, the the I guess the the hope is that we we instinctively know to some extent that people who are more transparent and vulnerable and humble uh, are generally more trustworthy, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we may get emotionally caught up with somebody who's very charismatic and sure, especially if it stages an uh, emotional need. But in our calmer, more deliberative moments, we trust the person who says, well, have you looked at it this way? And, uh, but again, there's always a trade-off because someone who gets, you know, too 
uh, analysis paralysis. And like, so the point is, is that what we're hoping to do is create this sort of, open, we talked about pro-social games way back at the beginning of this podcast, Ernest, mm-hmm. right? And we want people to people and like the, the ultimate pro-social game, and maybe it's both the minimum and the maximum requirement to be part of this ecosystem is that you, you um, are, it, 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 the, the status game is the people who are best at, at uh, being transparent about their data sets and their analyses have the most status within the community. We make that the status game is that we try to outdo each other in the comprehensiveness of our inputs, in the independence of our outputs, and the clarity of how we make decisions. And that's the status game that we want everyone in the ecosystem to play. And as long as they play that status game and we can compare each other and we can uh, let people do second or third order derivatives and how they rate us and so forth and play their own status games, that that is the datocratic vision of utopia. It doesn't mean that we get rid of all poverty or all injustice or all corruption. It means we're on this ratchet of ever greater transparency, ever wiser analyses, ever more reliable data. And that's maybe as good as we could get. Mm-hmm. Until we can. Yeah. I, 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 what I'm willing to say about that is that exactly what you said earlier, Ernie, which is that this is something worth trying. <laughs> right. So it, it, it's, pl- yeah. it's plausible enough and there's enough structure there that we should, as human beings, want to try it. And, you know, there it's are. The, it's the thesis. Yeah. yeah. In fact, when you look at it this way, you can actually look back at the history of civilization as not entirely consciously playing that game, right? Going from assassinations to trial by combat, going from trial by combat to trial by jury, going from alchemy to scientific method, right? Is that the idea is like, oh, well, yeah, Uh, going from, you know, uh, monarchy to oligarchy to democracy, right? Is that, ah, you can see that there's an information theoretic uh, uh, growth of datocracy. And in this view, like, I trust someone based on their level of transparency. Um, I may like them based on how much their social values or economic values agree with mine, but I trust them based on how datocratic they are, uh, if you will. And if we can, and that is sort of how you cut across the sort of left-right tribalisms that tend to emerge where we have these bubbles where I like you, therefore I trust your data, Therefore, I believe your analyses. Therefore, I trust you, which is a very ugly closed loop to get into. Mm. But yeah, that you have, yeah, that trust is earned through your uh, decision making and, like you said, the data that you considered, so that uh, you reduce the gut situation. Yeah, I use my gut. No, I use the data that I was uh, provided that I had at uh, that time. To make the decision, it's not gut. It's just a measure, you know, comparison, whatever. But yeah, but be like, but like, I'm okay with saying, like, okay, I, like, tell me what the track record of your gut is, right? If you because mm. what what I hate what, is when people say, well, I trust my gut, and I'm usually right. It's like, okay, are you really usually right, or are you just remembering all the times it worked out well for you and ignoring all the times it went badly for you? Right. That's it. You know, like if someone's got a really good gut, it's like, you know, or you, like, or you're, like uh, you're following the, the, the guide in enemy territory, you know, during war. He says, okay, my gut tells me that there's a sniper here. We really need to slow down. It's like, okay, um, the over and under on listening to your gut here is a really good one. Uh, but then, you know, sometimes they, they want to, you know, because it's a conservative thing, but it's like, you know, I really feel like we should trust this guy. I can't tell you why. It's like, okay, I want to look at this person's history and say, do I know them to make to be a good judge of character? Do I trust their gut in this context, right? And the better I know them, the better I know their history, the more I know that like, yeah, actually his gut's pretty good unless it's a beautiful woman, in which case it's horrible, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's rational trust of someone's gut. Because at the end of the day, we don't really know, we can make up stories. We don't really know how we make decisions. But the most objective thing we can do is to say, well, how have we made decisions? <laughs> And so, is this a context similar to one where you've shown yourself trustworthy? So maybe the, as a observer, I would say my values are data. 
uh, and that's my, you know, one of my main values, like you decide on data. Somebody else might say, uh, you know, I, I'm ruled by God, so I trust uh, also people who make God decisions. Then, uh, you know, for, for the God feeling person, uh, they can rev uh, review the decisions of some God, per you know, God also rule person and trust their God or or not, right? As my views is like, mm, if, I, if I cannot learn as much as I can about your decision-making process and what you consider uh, to make a decision, if I, if I cannot know that, then I cannot trust you. I don't care how much your gut is. I just, because I cannot assure myself that your gut is going to always be, you know, I don't understand. Well, it. I can, I, you can I, have I, really I, good data on somebody's gut, right? Like, what if you just have a thousand yeah, data yeah. points that this guy's gut is fantastic? I mean, <laughs> we right, don't even you know, have yeah, to get into right. in sample versus out of sample. Right. Like, well, I think it's I mean, a bit of a red herring. I think, I think what you're really reacting is someone who refuses to explain or examine how they make decisions and tell and they they, they tell you just trust me right mm. i think that's what you're reacting to is that case yeah and suppose someone says you know like hey i'm gonna ask you to trust me because i'm gonna give you this 20-year history of how i've been like like the jungle guide he says you know uh i need you to follow me into this jungle here um, I can't explain to you what I do, but I can tell you that I've taken thousands of people over 20 years into the most dangerous parts of the jungle, and no one has ever died. And you can check out the tourist office to find out that's true. So given that I have a history of being really successful here, I want you to just trust my gut when I tell you this is a good idea or there's a bad idea. That feels like a fair claim for someone to make, right? They can mm -hmm. have instinctual perceptions of things that they can't explain, but they have a track record of making good decisions. I think that's that's a that's different than conversely. I say I've got this G whiz guy here who says I've got this uh, beautifully worked out theory of an AI for working your way through a swamp and a sandpipe, and all of my analyses are pristine clear. I can show you all the results. Of course, you're going to be the first one to follow me through the swamp. Just trust me. I think you trust the first guy, not the second guy, right? It's yeah, not just the transparency of the analysis, it's the track record of how effective they were, right? So it's a relative thing. That's why I'm saying it's not just about that. Yeah, and also my, there, I have an ulterior motive in that I would like to codify these decisions so that, you know, in some future, some smart system can make them, you know, uh, and, yeah. and that's, right? So I wanna, you know, you know uh, this, yeah, but that's not, yeah, but that, 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 that's, yeah, but that's, so there's three different things going in. We want to track mm -hmm. the inputs that people use to make their decisions. We want to track mm -hmm. the consequences of those decisions. And to the extent possible, we want to uh, try to identify the features that led to those decisions, right? Isn't that what they call feature stores or feature flagging? Isn't there a word for this in AI, Anish? A feature store is a very specific thing that contains the dimensions of the training vectors. That sounds like word salad, but yeah, a feature store is yeah, where you extract the dimensions that you use for modeling. So, right, but I think that's the, kind of the, the idea. The features of the decision kind of the, are the parameters to the input. Yeah. Right, and the, the answer is that, like, right, is, is that like reporting, uh, someone said it's like art, 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 art criticism, is that sometimes the artist is the worst critic of their art. They're not really good at explaining how they did the thing they did. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to conflate the ability to make good decisions with the ability. On the same time, I do agree with you that transparency of analysis is that making an effort to say, well, I think I made the decision for these reasons. And that itself is another data set, right? You can look and say, okay, they say they make this decision. Does this actually correlate with the data and the decisions over time? Right? And you can say, well, some people are really good at it and some people are really bad at it. And some people are sincere and some people are liars. And, and there's a knot. It's not always obvious. I think there's a, a braid here. What is the word I'm looking for? There's a strange loop that we won't get around. And I'm a few years out of reading this book, but it was very, very impactful when I went through it for the first time. And it's, it's Descartes' error. 
and it's by mm. a, neuros, a neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio, as he wrote it. And the short of everything that he says is that Descartes' error was dualizing the mind and the body. And he seemed to imply that the mind is a rational entity and the body is an irrational entity. And these are kind of two halves of the human being. And then what he shows through scientific case studies, right, starting with Phineas Gage, you got the very famous incident of a man who had a very violent brain injury. I think a, mm. a railroad spike went through his head and it severed his corpse close and some other very selective structures in his brain. And here's the short of everything. Nobody, he gives many cases of people whose rational neurological centers are perfectly functional and are incapable of making basic decisions. So, I mean, right, this the is reality the, is, yeah. There, so the myth you, of a you, there is no reason without emotion, yeah. unfortunately. And, and the way I like right, to think because, about that yeah. is that emotion is the base of the recursion. Like you need an uh or an uh, like, you know, the, 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 most, the visceral system needs to provide an impulse and then the rational system can kind of, you know, d decide what priorities are and do the ratiocination and the calculation yeah. to get that thing, right? The fact that you're hungry affects very much your, how you will judge moral outcomes, uh, how you, right. and judges, what judges decisions you Judges give harsher sentences in the afternoon than first thing in the morning. There you go. That's a good example. And by the way, it gets, it gets better. I, I think if you put them, and there's different evidence for this, if you put them in a, in a less cushy chair, they'll make more, they'll make harsher decisions. I mean, this goes yeah. so, so far, it's terrifying. Yeah, embodied cognition, right, is that we are not independent of our environment. And, and, but that's what makes us human, is that we, you know, like things that are purely syntactic, we can automate, but it's so, these hard imponderables that, that incorporate all these ambient experiences that are hard. And, but like, you know, part of the thing is like, okay, you know, where there is good data, you want people and good algorithms, you want people to use them. And where there isn't, you want to collect the inputs and the outputs so that you have a hope of creating better ones in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now this is fascinating. So I think I can justify my earlier, it was a, a flight of fancy, let's call it, that there's a third dimension to this. So a political compass is, we have a political dimension, we have an economic dimension, and I'm going to talk about the data. This is, by the way, so, it's usually, it's usually, usually it's a little bit concerned that they slice it as social versus economic. Social conservative oh, economic. Oh, people don't say, oh, I guess that is very confusing the way I'm saying it. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Social versus economic. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's right. Because yeah. it's a political compass. Political is both axes together. Right. Yeah. So uh, it, w here's the thing that's kind of blowing my mind. So, so first, uh, I guess I got very curious about the fact, and I think you got a violent agreement from Ernest when you said that datocracy is opposition to fiat, right? So the, in other words, you know, an oversimplification is that we have two poles, which is you do this because I say so. And another is, well, we do this because this is the evidence. So that, mm -hmm. that became very interesting to me. And I think Ernest responded to that very positively, but I, 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 you can also be a dictator with data. It's, and it's very, very easy. And some would argue, actually, if you look at CDC and WHO that, you know, they use the data to their favor to get people to do what they want them to do. And it's more, it's a lot of social engineering based on data. So I guess I'm now, yeah. so based on this fact that you can, you can, oh yeah, this is it. Based on the fact that you can use data to dissent or break from authority or fiat, or that you can use data to justify your decrees, even if it's 51% versus 49%, which is a good description mm -hmm. Of, of how democracy resolves itself uh, means that data is double-edged and probably deserves to be considered separately from the, I guess, social and economic dimensions of your political orientation. Hmm. Hmm. And I, yeah. I wish there yeah. were a second part here's of that the, word. Here's the, you can have a data autocracy or a data liberty. I mean, there's probably a lot of different flavors you could insert in there. But, but, but what we're talking about here, though, I think is the, I think the there's a nub here, if I could grab it, hold it. There is a, there's a radical statement here. It's almost a radical centrist statement. It's like, it, the, the claim is that, um, there are certain, like I, I, my, my manifesto, right, the, the, the coherency manifesto, our ability to make better decisions together is the most valuable resource as a community. If you take that as a premise, 
that implies that, uh, and I think I believe this, is that the way we uh, handle the data around our decisions is more important than any given decision. And that, like I said, I, and like as a data crat, I would say I would rather have a uh, person whose personal values were opposed to mine uh, on a bunch of social and economic issues, but they were fanatical about documenting, you know, the inputs they considered, the analyses they used, and the consequences of their decision. Because I know that over time, that will enable us to do way better in the future, as opposed to someone who I agree with about everything, but is a horrible mess when it comes to keeping track of their data and their things, because like he may be a genius and then we'll have no idea what he actually did and whether or not we're going to reproduce it. It's mm -hmm. certainly that's the way I feel about a scientist, right? I don't care whether the scientist is right. I care whether or not they show their work who I can build mm -hmm. on because I assume it's never going to be perfect, but it's always going to teach us something that we can use to do better. And I guess that's in some sense my, oh, by the way, I realize this is bizarre about me. This is what I mean by scientific not whether you believe in Newton's law or evolution or this or that. It means that you care more about the data and getting the data right than whether or not it proves that you are right. Mm. So, yeah, and that's really uh, hard. Uh, it's hard to do. It's so I'll hard. Get, jump in just a second, Ernest. There's a whole new series. And by the way, the file drawer effect confounds all of this because and Sorry, what? Just to break the file drawer effect. So basically, people don't publish negative results. And what that means is, is that right. the sample of research papers is biased towards the few instances that some XYZ experiment actually did succeed, even if it's statistically unpopular. And so this is why there's a whole reproducibility crisis in science. And now they're starting to have journals and awards. They're changing when peer review happens. And like they're starting to have journals for difficult to reproduce results for negative results so that we get a more complete picture of the universe. But I'm not 100% convinced that, that human beings can even do this. And some of the most brilliant scientists or even mathematicians, Ramunajan was famous for, I don't have a proof, but this is true. <laughs> You know, it, it wasn't because he was low integrity either. He, it's just the way his mind worked. Mm -hmm. hmm. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I had to drop off there for a second. But I think the, I think the answer is like, look, uh, there's all sorts of horrible things wrong with science, but we're still way better off than we were with alchemy. We have made quantum steps of improvement in transparency, accountability. Proof. We have created a scientific establishment which was deeply corrupt in, and egotistical and selfish in many ways, but it's still a huge step up from where we were before, right? We have I a would slightly agree. better status game. And so the point is that like, hey, we're not here to say like everyone else sucks and we're gonna be brilliant. It's like, no, what we're saying is that we are self-consciously aware that the thing that makes science better than alchemy and that makes right. is the fact that we have created culture and status games around you know honoring the data over the decision yes it's self-verification really right so in other words right. the more and, we distribute and, 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 the power of verification the more that we we attack the, the more we destroy fiat and dictates by decree right it, that's right. really well, what well, it's about like, it is a decentralization right, of yeah, sorts right yeah it, it's the yeah decentralization of of power as well as a, a verification and, 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 of, is a very specific kind. It's a decentralization Ooh, of truth. Yeah, the, the, this, yeah, this is precisely the blockchain problem, isn't it? Yes, you it is. You want to have a distributed set of entities who do verification. That's right. That's without, the, uh, any, without a central authority, without a central authority, right? Because the traditional, yeah. what's the opposite right, of server client, but, but, server but, model. But in fact, actually, but the irony is you need a central authority to verify that the verification, uh, you don't have a central verification authority, you have a central auditing authority to verify that you have decentralized verification authority. Right, the blockchain consortium is the one that makes sure that nobody has more than 50% of the blockchain. And they themselves have a transfer sure. mechanism where they can be verified. Right? Like, well, there is, but there's no way to introduce an authority in the blockchain. Like in other words, you either did totally the work, is. barring, no. 
No, come no, on. So, so, how do you have forks? Uh, well, so a fork is a different, you know, different universe. It's not a. Right? It's, you have to convince a whole bunch of, uh, you know. Uh, right, uh, uh, but, no, but what you what you do is, is you have a. But in practice, you have a sense of the blockchain consortium or whatever the foundation, whatever it is, right? There is an entity that the blockchain community uses for self-government, right? Mm -hmm. To say, hey, these are bug fixes that we're all going to patch. We're all going to apply to this version. And there are people who can dissent and say, well, no, we want this or not that. We're going to take this or not that. I mean, there but there, there's no junta a, like that. They, the, you either the miners either accept, take the patches, or they don't. Right, and that's kind of, and then well, you, I guess there but, are, but, but it's not, but 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 it's not. I mean, like it's not like there, there is no power. There's no centralized power, well, but there is centralized authority. That's the big uh, difference, uh, right? Well, is that you, is that there's a legitimate process that people vote and they say, okay, we this is a legitimate thing. It's got no. Well, process. there's no voting. That's that's the thing. It's like so. What I'm saying is, when you clear a block, well, they vote you with prove their feet. that you did the work. Sure. Well, at, 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 sure. at the micro level, but the macro level, when people talk about bug fixes and patches, you know, they do have these discussions, right? And they do happen just like any other open source project does. And you say, this is what we recommend as a patch. And most people, most miners, most of the time take the recommended patch and they don't take random patches from strangers. There's an authority there. They have the power to opt in or out, but there's still an authority. And if there's a disagreement, they have a disagreement. Well, right? but it's that, an individual is, decision, right? The, the, my, those miners. Right. That, that's what I mean. They have the power, right? They have the power mm -hmm. to opt in or out, out and vote with their feet. That's really important. But mm -hmm. to me, that's decentralized power. But there is still a centralized authority. There is a thing we call the blockchain and like the current branch and version of the blockchain. And there may be two of them in the future where there's, you know, Bitcoin gold and Bitcoin. Uh, oh, we've already had, you know, every, every imaginable. Force, right? Sure. But the point is, is that the, the whole reason that we have the concept of force is that it's not like Linux was before distribution, where there's just this random sea of software everywhere and everyone grabs random versions. Someone says, no, this is our distribution, and that's an authority. And everyone is free to defect and do whatever they want, but at least they say, no, if you want to have some consistency, we're an authority, this is our process, this is our values, this is the data that we care about. And we're going to give you this distribution. So, to me, a, a, a maybe, a but so the part community... you're missing, or where I think the disagreement is, is that the blockchain is not correct because of the stewards of the blockchain. So, first of all, it's no, I understand. Blockchain. Uh, right. But the point is, so at, nobody at locally, the, the blockchain is the blockchain, It's true in and of itself, right? The, the blockchain well, is well, true at because given point in time, the hash is yes. bad. Okay. But 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 the the but, but the blockchain is trustworthy because I believe that when I that that nobody bought up sixty percent of the blockchain when I wasn't watching and now they subvert it however they want. Well, that's why no I the block no it's trustworthy because you check can check all the hash. There's no change. Well, the but, that, but, that, but that tells me the pest. Yeah. Well, it only affects the future moving forward. So you 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 can't well, move that's past. What, money but that's what I mean. But, but exactly. So the data about the past is locked. That's good, right? Immutable public history. The most valuable thing in our ontology sure. is that. Sure. But the reason I trust Bitcoin for the future is I believe that there is a legitimate process for ensuring that future transactions will have the same legitimacy as the past. And like, you know, you have questions about Ethereum for the very person that you have questions about their process. And, you know, and, you know, Anyway, I think the where we're quibbling about here is we're in closing arguments. So I got to go wrap up and, and go to dinner. And and then you should mention that this has been a great run for you, but you're probably going to have to reallocate your priorities, uh, which oh, is totally I wanted, fine. I, I would, this is a really good. Answer. Yeah, yeah. No, I would love to do many more, but I think realistically, the the company is just demanding a lot more time. And by the way, Ernie, we, we you and our we're, our conversation continues, and I have very I've good good stuff coming your way uh, shortly. In yeah. that regard. But yeah, I think it's just a business man. I, I would either like to cut the volume way down for me, like, you know, or I can guess it here, or like we can wrap up in, in one episode or now. That's, that's cool. Yeah. But realistically, well, so Ernest and I will keep meeting weekly. But I think that, you know, like, I want to make this the end of, like, I move this into the season, Ernest and I will talk about what happens next. But we expected you just for one session. And to have you for these, you know, four or five sessions, I forget how many, has been fantastic. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, thank you. It was so fun, guys. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like you let me into your home. And I, I just tremendously enjoyed the conversation and I, I hope it can get somewhere. And I, <laughs> I hope some, I hope that we will find more data crats, if that's the right word or 
more people were at least interested in exploring this idea. And, and I think that governance is, is a sempaternal idea. We're always going to be looking for better systems for it. And mm-hmm. data drivenness is certainly, and in some sense, and sometimes corporations forerun what governments drive it or what governments will do. It, it, this is the, the one thing that distinguishes, let's see, Bridgewater, Ray Dalio, uh, or Google, or Netflix from every other company is they claim to be data-driven. And if we can answer this question of what does it look like to be data-driven and how can we have distributed governance with uh, transparent data systems, that's just really, really powerful. And I think it's an inevitability. There's just no doubt that starting with Bitcoin and blossoming to other types of projects, I don't even mean other cryptocurrencies, uh, we're going to continue to examine this question of trust. And Ernie, I think you you said it very powerfully because I was and it was I was already thinking it. So I think you it was a thought that was developing, and you made it clear. This is the change when we went from alchemy to science, right? It's like mm-hmm. well, or or a better uh, a better dichotomy for me is religion to science because there's a very clear authority in the religion case. And who is the authority in science? Well. Sure, there's the publication, but at the end of the day, run your own experiments or do your own diligence, apply your own logic, and it's either true or it's not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I love all that. I would uh, personally prefer the phrase data conscious to data driven, because data driven to me feels a bit like the mechanistic, the data <laughs> overlord. Yeah, yeah, yeah data conscious to me is like I'm aware of the data that's there, and I'm aware of the importance of my data exhaust like this podcast is yeah. as important as the things I do. It's, it, it, it is a um, uh, data respectful. Uh, there's there's, there's got to be a fun word that I'll use on that next time I'm awake well, at four o'clock in the morning. You tied up my last stray thought from, from this particular podcast, which is that we talked about all these things that, uh, that create trust is like, okay, we have an immutable history. That's being the principal one, but let's not forget trust is a choice. Right. So so in order for there to be trust, you not only need a track record that is verifiable, you need an, an individual to choose that they accept this is true. And and that's exactly where you're going just now. There there has to be an element of, of free will in it, acceptance in that. So data conscious. Love it. Yeah, I'll use data consciousness as the uh, title for this episode. <laughs> I love it. And uh, Ernest, one, any final thoughts? Yeah, um, you mentioned the scientific method, right? Where multiple scientists can, uh, uh, you know, follow instructions and and verify whether somebody's theory is right or wrong. Uh, I think, or it's, it's probably obvious, but that datacracy should be that method and that collection of data that is. Everybody believes in it, you know, whether you're conservative or progressive or whatever, right? You know, you can, people have all kinds of views and values, whatever. But they need uh, one thing that uh, uh, makes decisions um, easy to research and, and know that, that everybody can use and everybody can verify so that that's like your base layer, your, you know, scientific method, that's the, the basics, and then you can you know, talk to astronomers and, and other, you know, scientists and even non-scientists that, that fancy themselves scientists. But then once they try to use the scientific method, they fail because, you know, whatever they're, they're practicing is not science. Astronomy, for example, they, you know, is it, not science because, you know, you cannot use the scientific method to verify their uh, observations. So so with a dictocracy, that, that, that would be the mechanism by which things get done and then on top of that you have other you know have organizations that adopt it and then use it they cannot modify it you know if, if they do if let's say they have some nice way to collect data or something they maybe they can you know uh, contribute upstream and then people accept it yeah you're right you know we can share this everybody can share it no matter what what their views are and but that's the mechanism, and then the uh, everything downstairs, you know, downstream uh, is are like consumers or users of that mechanism. But everybody has to trust the mechanism. That's that's the important thing. That you know, no, no matter who you are, you have to trust that, and that's important to do. And 
I just want to, yeah, you know, say that. All right. It's a lot easier to trust the process decision. than it is to trust a person. I think it maybe. Well, maybe I'll think about that. It probably depends on the context for me. Um, mm. But it certainly it is better to trust when you have ample, reliable data about what's going on than when you don't. <laughs> yeah, like we have to show that this system works, right? It, it, right. It works. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So I think next week we're going to do a, a wrap, Ernest and I, and then we will discuss whether we call an end to the season or we try and draft another uh, person to interview. And but this has been fantastic. Thank you all very much. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys. Bye-bye. Good night.